Hi folks, this episode is part two of a two-part mini-series. To get the full story of the background of Dublin's infamous Hellfire Club and the site we visit in this episode, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episode if you haven't already. It's rather soberly named The Hellfire Club Lore of Dublin's Hell House, and it'll fill you in on the details of the supposed Black Mass, the ghosts and the ghouls, and the real-life bizarre characters associated with the notorious Hellfire Club group. We'll be right here waiting for you, drink in hand. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and from here at the Cabin in the Woods in Wild West Cork, I investigate stories of monsters, hauntings, UFOs, and fringe beliefs. We're critical, not cynical here at the Cabin, but we love a good story. And sometimes we get to hit the road to investigate a story firsthand. This episode features recordings from my recent trip to see the Hellfire Club itself, the building on Montpellier Hill outside Dublin City. I was extremely lucky to have along on the visit the brilliant and knowledgeable Victoria Ann Pearson, PhD candidate at University College Cork, who is, amongst other things, a specialist in 18th century Ireland with an interest in the history of belief, superstitions and folk traditions in Ireland. Victoria's insight into this period of Irish history made the trip come alive and I think will really make this episode a great one. The craft beer for this episode is the suitably titled Devil's Backbone from Kinnegar Brewing way up in Donegal, a lovely amber ale, and far preferable to Skulthine, the drink of the Hellfire Club books, which was a mixture of whiskey and butter. Grab yourself a brew and join us for this episode, Hellfire Club The Road Trip. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi folks, you are welcome to the cabin and you are welcome to the episode. This is indeed part two of our Hellfire Club series, mini-series I suppose. Uh, we I've just come back, well, a few days ago from my Hellfire trip. I had a great time. I'm really jazzed about it. I have loads of loads of cool stuff to share with you and we have some recordings from the day as well and all that is still to come. But as usual, first I have to do some community stuff, some shout outs, some shares, stuff like that. So first and foremost, a gigantic massive monster size thanks to the guys over at the Monster Fuzz podcast. That's Rob and Eamon. Huge thanks guys. They were good enough to have me on their show recently and that episode should be coming out maybe tomorrow and I'll put a link in the show notes so you can find it. So uh, Rob and Eamon do Monster Fuzz podcast which is also an Irish show and deals with monsters as you might expect. Uh, very 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 different in tone. A lot of jokes, a lot of banter. I get to be silly. I got to be silly in ways that I usually am not on my own show. So that was loads and loads of fun. Um, yeah, all about the jokes. Uh, some not for little ears. I'll just put that out there. But the guys do a tremendous job. They're absolute. They're an absolute powerhouse. They get so many episodes out there, and they cover. They have a, a, a real, a real love for the for the subject, and you can tell they know their stuff, and they've done all their reading, and they know all their monsters, and they love them. So huge thanks to Rob and Eamon. Nice guys, and have been helping me out a little bit um, with certain elements of podcasting. It's really it's really positive to check in with another podcast and see how they do things under the hood. 
so to speak. So that uh, will be in the link, so you can check that out. And um, also, we had some really good feedback this week, some really interesting messages from folks over on Instagram. So I'm going to talk about James from Aberdeen, who sent us a lovely message about the QAnon episode that we did recently. So that was myself and my brother, Donald. Uh, talking about QAnon, the conspiracy theory, and I, we must at some point have, have rambled into talking about the rapture, which the, 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 the Christian idea of, of sort of the end of the world, and I suspect we were probably making connections between QAnon's constant expectations of the, the, the storm, as they call it, and the sort of apocalyptic end of days scenarios that are mentioned in some religions. So um, James from Aberdeen comes in, he says... I really enjoyed your recent episode on QAnon, but felt the need to point out a small error mostly semantic in the show. So, Jehovah's Witnesses do not, in fact, believe in the rapture in the traditional sense. The term rapture conjures images of the faithful being swept to heaven while the wicked remain on earth to be judged. That's the whole uh, left behind thing. Uh, James continues, Jehovah's Witnesses' beliefs are a little more complex, with the majority of the faithful surviving the day of judgment on earth and staying there to experience an earthly paradise, not a heavenly one. I will admit that the beliefs of the movement that came to be known as Jehovah's Witnesses were more akin to a traditional rapture uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th, but the idea of a rapture is not particularly representative of what they believe today. Thanks for the great show. So, yeah, great, lovely, nice little tidy up there, and we're always happy to have uh, corrections. Uh, James also sent us just a few little tidbits of folklore from his area of the world, which is the sort of thing I love. So if you have any of those out there, uh, please do let us know. So James says, we actually have a lot of weird folk stories surrounding our area. For one thing, we have a lot of recumbent stone circles. A lot of stone circles here in Cork as well, um, many of which have uh, folk stories associated with them so james says there's also a single standing stone said to have once been a beautiful girl transformed by magic and it's known as the maiden stone which is itself at the bottom of a hill called benaki and benaki sports an iron age fort that's a one possible location for the battle of mons gropius uh, b according to one tale i was told as a child a gateway to hell little bit of a link to what we're going to be talking about today in our main episode and C, often mistaken for an inactive volcano due to its shape. Great stuff. Thanks very much, James. Yeah, if anyone out there has kind of folklore from their own area, we'd love to know about it. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or over on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Now, we had another message from Francisca from Germany, which is great. I didn't realize we had a lot of people listening in Germany. And she sent me a really fascinating message. She said... Just line this up here. Hi, Kian. This morning, I had a really nice walk while listening to the podcast. Decided to let you know that I stumbled on it by accident, but stayed because it is weirdly calming. That's a nice, uh, that's a nice recommendation. I'll, I'll start putting that. Uh, <laughs> I'll start putting that at the top of the show. We're weirdly calming. I'm a big fan of everything spooky and paranormal, but as a psychology student, I also tend to look at things more from a skeptical angle. I think that doesn't make anything you talk about less fascinating, and I appreciate you looking at things from all perspectives. Oh, and she says, when I listened to the episode on the Sierra Sounds, so that was pretty recent, that was when we talked about the Bigfoot audio recordings from the 1970s, so check out that episode if you haven't. I found your thoughts on the romanticization of the, quote, manly man and colonization very interesting. I feel like almost every episode we end up talking about colonialism, but <laughs> I, I'm very interested in the connection between cryptozoology and, and 
colonialism. So there's a little bit of it in that episode about this Sierra Sounds. She says, um, the yeah, yeah. She also mentions the the the, the quote samurai calls that is is how people characterize some of the Sierra Sounds noises which refers to racist stereotypes. The underlying racism in many of the weird and fantastical stories I love so much have become more apparent to me as I grow older. And yeah, I've, I've mentioned this about stuff like Ancient Aliens, and I've had people say, you know, I, I've always enjoyed those stories, but I've never quite made those connections to either colonialism or, or even sometimes, you know, straight-up racism. But again, like I always say, it doesn't mean that any, any people who enjoy the stories necessarily mean any ill by it, but I think there is certainly something to be gained by studying the context in which these stories do come about. So Francisca continues and says, um, Since this comes up on the podcast frequently, I wonder <clears throat> how you reflect on it as a person who retells and recontextualizes them for an audience. I think this reflection is, a real, is really important and a complex process, and I'm interested on what different people who engage in it have to say. I, yeah, I absolutely agree, and um, I do feel a tremendous, even I'm not claiming to be a huge influencer, as the, as the term is, or anything like that, but I still think, as anybody working in media, we have a, a responsibility to present stuff in a certain way, shall we say. And then she says, do you maybe know of any people of colour who um, pr produce stuff like this? And that was really interesting to me, because I couldn't, off the top of my head, uh, think of anybody working in in particularly, let's say, cryptozoology, um, who isn't, you know, one of the usual sort of uh, Western white people that we consider. And, and then I had a little look around to see if anybody was doing stuff like this and made me think, you know, is, is that something that we need to consider about the state of the field? So that's a little task for me now in the future is to find people from different backgrounds who are covering this stuff. And I personally would be really interested to hear about people's ideas about the, the field of particularly cryptozoology coming from a point of view that isn't sort of Western-centric, because to me it is very loaded with colonial implications, and that's kind of when it came about in history, and I'd love to have other perspectives on that. So uh, Francisca finishes up by saying, I hope you're enjoying your trip to the Hellfire Club, and looking forward to the new episodes. Best wishes from Germany. So yeah, thanks very much for that. Very interesting, giving me some stuff to think about, and uh, some stuff to work on for future episodes as well. So, yeah, let's get around to the Hellfire Club. So, with me for the trip, as I mentioned at the top, was Victoria Ann Pearson. Uh, absolutely fantastic to spend the day with Victoria and hear all of her ideas about this. Everything we saw, we neither of us had ever been to the site before, so it was really exciting. We'd both been reading about it for years, and we'd never, never just taken the time to go there. Um. I personally didn't get a whole lot of extra reading done before the trip um, compared to the last episode you heard. So most of what you'll hear us saying on the trip are just what's on the top of our head, what we're, what we're seeing, what we're thinking in the moment. But I'll give you Victoria's full sort of bio just so you know she's tremendously accomplished and has done a lot of different interesting things. So her re research focuses on the life and work of the Catholic Bishop of Cork, Dr. Francis Moylan, in the 1700s with a particular focus on the creation and popularity of popular, de popular devotion and social movements. So that's all stuff like Catholic poor school education and Catholic emancipation, which are all huge elements of Irish history. And her work has been published by the History Studies Journal, Women's History Association of Ireland, uh, the Writing the Troubles blog, and RTE's Brainstorm. So that's the national broadcaster here in Ireland. So we're tremendously lucky to have Victoria on for the episode. And with that, I'm going to seek into our first bit of on-the-road um, audio, 
which is us at Killakee House. So if you listen to the previous episode, you'll know that Killakee House is at the base of Montpelier Hill, and it's like the first place you, you probably will stop off at on your way to see the Hellfire Club. It's a lovely old-fashioned building, and uh, we're, this is us having a, a cup of coffee just outside the front of it. Okay, we're here at uh, Killikey House. It's a little bit noisy. We're in a sort of a courtyard um, where people are having coffee and drinks and stuff. There's a few idling cars and there's an outdoor food venue that has a kind of a noisy engine attached to it. So you might hear a little bit of that, but yeah. Victoria, tell us a little bit about what we've seen so far. Well, I think a lot of the outbuildings here are really derelict, but when you look at them, they're fairly typical of what you'd expect at the Hellfire Club and anything to do with 18th century Ireland. Um, stone buildings, unfortunately, it only seems to be like the front facade of them is left. The roofs have caved in, um, but there is some really nice Irish stonework and some um, carriage arches that have been built over and blocked up. So it's very invocative. I think of those who'd be arriving at the Hellfire Club probably would have pulled in here to have a port or a glass of sherry or maybe even something stronger than that before they headed up in the dark of night to the hunting lodge but it does even though it's quite nice here and it's very family oriented and there's loads of children about and it's very bright and um, it's a lovely autumn day there is kind of a sinister sort of undertone to it because of the dereliction and I suppose because of what we associate with the building here um, at any moment, the black cat of Kilkey House could make an appearance. And we've seen the famous uh, painting on the inside of the building. Yes, the cat is is kind of immortalised, isn't it, here in the building, in front of a gorgeous um, open fire. They have this very kind of dark and sinister um, picture, portrait of a cat. Now, there's a couple of black dogs, so I'm sure they're keeping the cats at bay at the moment. But um, no, the cat, the spirit of the cat of Kilkey is very much alive and well here at Kilkey House. I'm just going to uh, read a tiny little bit from Dave Walsh's article from blather.com. It's called Hellfire Club Accidental Satanists. And he has a lovely bit where he talks about some of the stories associated with uh, Kilkey. So he, he noticed that at least three deaths from dueling took place uh, outside in this yard. And um, uh, a, f- a famous member of the a famous person from the history of the Irish Revolutionary Movement, who of course was Countess Markovich, uh, he reckon he says um, occupied the house, and that ver- various members of her group were actually killed during the War of Independence here in yeah, the 1920s. You can very much see that in the buildings. You know, it does have the sort of faded elegance of you know landed gentry or an Anglo-Irish class that might have been here in bygone times you could definitely imagine a duel taking place in this courtyard when you agree Kian you could definitely see it happening it's he also mentions that uh, so in the 1960s the house was owned by a woman named Margaret O'Brien who built uh, an art center here and she was uh, told by the people that the area was haunted by a black cat a a large oversized black cat and she apparently did see it uh, on the grounds on more than one occasion and there are numerous stories associated with the cat which is the, the painting that we saw on the inside it then goes on to say oh, oh, there's a man named Tom McCassie who was a friend of hers and an artist he's the man who did the painting after supposedly seeing the animal himself and uh, Walsh then says more paranormal events were to haunt the house including apparitions of nuns 
<laughs> poltergeist power failures during a seance uh, at one point a catholic priest was called in to sort things out but uh, things got even dafter when headgear in the form of small caps were reported to be regularly teleporting themselves into the house and were to be found on picture hooks or other odd places and, and that's of interest to me because I might have mentioned this before on an episode, I can't remember, but when I was a kid and I had the Osborne Haunted Houses book, there was one story there that always mystified me where they said at a place in called Killakee somewhere in Ireland, there was a poltergeist case where a house was invaded by flying hats. And I've always wondered, um, I've, I've always wanted more information about that. So finally, I found a little bit more of a clue. Well, this is definitely a location, I think, where you could suggest something um, is happening and you'd be more than inclined to believe it because it's very atmospheric it's set here you know kind of at the foot of a very forested hill and um, it's a very winding narrow road to get up to it and the look of the house itself you know is, is very much traditional of those um, Irish farmhouses with a low ceiling and small windows and the fire is actually lit today and there's a lovely smell of that kind of turf burning so it's very evocative of that time and um, you can see that it was very well kept and that there is a lot of history here and like lots of people have lived here down through the generations and I'm sure they've all left an imprint on um, the house and on the area um, yeah you could nearly suggest anything happened here really couldn't you and you'd believe it it's like um, an ideal location to, to set any um, story from the 18th or 19th century Ireland and just uh, peeping over the side of the building, we can see the forested side of what I presume is, is Montpellier Hill, which is where we, we will be going uh, after coffee. Yeah. After leaving Killakee House, we made our way up the paths towards the Hellfire Club itself. So that involved going up through the forest onto the hill until we came up onto a wide open space from where you have an incredible view of Dublin City and the infamous building itself kind of on its own almost sticking out on, on a plain and then surrounded by forest a little ways away. So this is the very place where, according to Dublin lore, the infamous Hellfire Club had their headquarters. Uh, no less a man than Jonathan Swift himself once wrote of them that they were a brace of monsters, blasphemers and bacchanalians. And if you like Jonathan Swift, we will have a Jonathan Swift episode coming up very shortly. Um, Jeffrey Ash, in his book, The Hellfire Clubs, A History of Anti-Morality, says uh, about the Irish Protestant gentry, The Irish Hellfire groups are hard to sort out. They tended to be more frankly wicked and sometimes more overtly harmful. Their members flirted with crime and with an ill-informed kind of black magic and devil worship just to give you an idea of some of the kinds of stories that were told about the group at the time. Now, from the website Abarta Heritage, which is a fantastic resource for information about the Hellfire Club, they write, A night out along Cork Hill in the 1730s must have been lively and somewhat dangerous, as a number of competing groups such as the Hellfire Club and the Blasters haunted the area. They were no doubt attracted by the quantity of social establishments. A survey of Dublin's 18th century shop signs lists no fewer than six taverns in close proximity, including the Hellfire Club's favourite meet meeting place, the Eagle Tavern. So it is known that that was their main spot, actually in Dublin City itself, 
and their link to this particular building up on Montpelier Hill is a little more sketchy. There are some who doubt whether they regularly met there at all. The usual explanation is that it was built by one of their early members, Speaker Connolly, um, though there is argument back and forth about whether or not this was indeed the case. What is not in question, however, is that the people of Dublin for generations, literally for hundreds of years, have associated this particular building with the group and with dark doings. So we've made our way up to the top of Montpelier Hill and there's a whole load of families out for the day. It's a bit of an overcast day, but it's still a pleasant Saturday to be outdoors. A lot of families are here having a nice time. Um, it's quite breezy, so we came into the building. So we came around the corner and saw the Hellfire Club building itself and we have popped inside to do some recording just because of the wind. And um, yeah, Victoria, let's, let's chat about what we see here on the inside. A really strange building. I mean, not of its time at all. You know, it, they, it was obviously built for quite a specific purpose with re a really specific architectural um, structure in mind. And it's a pity that we see it now in a ruin because you're left guessing constantly at like what it was and what each room was and like how it looked and how decadent it might be. And we're, we're standing in this like spectacular room that has this incredible view over Dublin Bay and obviously they would have had that view here at the time of the Hellfire Club and in this room you can tell even though it's very decayed and it's um, quite derelict that at one time it was um, a, a ceremonial room or something that was a, a room that was meant to be very ornate because there are these um, kind of cubby holes cut into the walls which were obviously there for some um, to display some sort of statues or vases or ornaments of some type we can only guess at who they were maybe like Lord Bacchus or Dionysus or somebody that the Hellfire Club admired but there's this incredible fireplace here in the, the centre of the room and it's incredible for many reasons but one of them is it's, it's really narrow and if you're somebody who likes gothic and it's somebody who likes all the, the lore and all the films and all the books that to do with that you'd recognize this fireplace immediately maybe from a set of a Tim Burton movie because it's it's sort of narrow and tall and teetering and out of proportion and um, it just about is the right size for a man to fit into it. So you wonder, is it some sort of portal to have the fard of himself come true? Or did they use it maybe as um, some sort of initiation that you stood in this fireplace and this was to, to be some sort of kind of portal into the underworld or to a fiery neither world somewhere? But it is a very, very strange um, fireplace from a time. And it suggests that this place is much, much older than what it is. They were, they were really into spectacle, I think, Ian, weren't they? They were really trying to prove a point with this or to make some sort of massive statement as to what they were doing here. Yeah, there's certainly a sense of extravagance at the moment because it's been burnt out. It lo it's, it's kind of castle-like or like, like a ruined church, perhaps, because there's nothing on the wall. The walls are bare and stone, incredibly thick 
almost like fortifications. Yeah, incredibly thick. Now, again, if it, if it was used as a haunting lodge, I think some of the little anterooms downstairs might have been used as cold storage from any animals that might have been killed in a hunt or places maybe to, to hold timber or coal to service the fires. But apart from this really ornate and you know unusual fireplace upstairs, there's just one big fireplace downstairs. So it doesn't look like there was a lot of cooking facilities here or that there was a lot of sort of, um, that th this was a place where people lived for any period of time. I think maybe you might have just have been here some place to call in to, to have me to kind of warm up if you were on a hunt or you know you might be just here for the night for a party now the the fireplace downstairs has an interesting article on the on the mantle is that correct yeah, and that's a bit of the folklore that's associated with the hellfire club and um, that apparently in the construction of this when speaker Connolly was constructing this in the early um, 1700s that they disturbed um, a cairn which would be like a, a burial um, mound from old pagan times and they bought the capstone of the cairn into the house and used it as the capstone or kind of the mantelpiece for the fire and apparently that disturbed some really, like really ancient entity that was here in the, in the um, Dublin mountains and that is associated here with, um, with the Hellfire Club. So we kind of get the devil in all his forms, you know, um, that he's here throughout the ages, that's kind of ancient evil that is associated with the place here. Speaking of the devil, I'm a huge Dennis Wheatley fan myself. So um, he's a British novelist who wrote famous books in the 1930s and 40s and beyond. And I think personally is kind of largely responsible for kicking the modern notion of what we think of as occultism or Satanism in, in, into into a, at least a certain modern version of it, in, into, into the shape it is today. And he, like this, the legends associated with this place is loaded with like Dennis Wheatley tropes. And actually I've just been rereading his, he has a book called The Irish Witch, which is written late in his, I think it's maybe his last book, it's from the early 1970s. And it's like about 90% about like Napoleonic Wars and full of like really intense Napoleonic War detail. But um, a little subsection of it is about the titular Irish witch who is trying to bring the Hellfire Club back um, in, the, at the, in, in the early 19th century. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff. He brings in a lot of sort of like Irish Republican stuff from that time and uh, nationalist stuff and links them to, of course, Satanism and occultism because that's his, his jam. But Victoria, tell us a little bit about the guys who would have been here because you were saying that they were rich and decadent in ways that maybe we might find difficult to conceive of now. Yeah, and I suppose that's sort of one of the more disappointing elements of the Hellfire Club is that these guys per probably were not dedicated, you know, devil worshipping or, you know, Satanists in any kind of a modern way that we would see would see that. They were just they were of a class that had been um, a ruling class here in Ireland and been part of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, even though that term in itself is loaded and, and is very complex. But they were, they were a, um, a, a typical kind of group that emerged in Dublin. You would have found them in London and all the major cities in England at the time. They were just very rich, very spoiled, very bored. And um, one of the fashionable ways to behave and to entertain yourself at this time was to 
meet in these clubs and societies and kind of the more outlandish the better and the more kind of complex the better and of course what they're looking for they're very much in that libertine tradition like of the Earl of Rochester and people like this they're trying to be as provocative and offensive as possible and um, in the same way that we might be like look you know, wanting like a million Twitter hits or you know um, a million followers on Instagram they want everybody reading about them in the pamphlets and in the papers that are circulating in Dublin at the time and they're really thriving and loving the notoriety of it so and again they're competing with other clubs and societies that are operating in Dublin and London in who can be as mo- the most outlandish as possible and you're, you know you're dealing with a society that is very religiously divided and um, religion is at the forefront of you know politics and the way people think and the way people live their lives at the time so again if you're trying to be notorious it's one of the big um it's something that you would go after you know it's something that's really going to shock and appall people so i think that's where it's it's more sort of tongue-in-cheek and probably you know what they would consider fun um to you know have all these big elaborate rituals or even just to say they had those big elaborate rituals i'm sure the motto of the hellfire club was if you can remember the hellfire club you weren't really there (laughs) so i think a lot of this stuff was attributed to them it might a story might have gotten exaggerated or certain features were attributed to them particularly the trope of the devil because again you know there's um, the paper wars of the 18th century are very well known where you know newspapers were trying to outsell each other people were trying to get their political um, opinions across and one of the only ways you can do it is the newspaper because there's no radio or television so they, um, there's a lot of propaganda around um, societies like the Hellfire Club because people are trying to say that this group of people, this landed class, are so morally corrupt they're unfit to rule. And like, look at the extent that they've, the degradation that they've actually, you know, descended to now. That they, they're so bad and they're so inept. Um, that they're, you know, the, the devil himself has appeared in Dublin, you know, and walks amongst them. Do you know? So I think, you know, in some ways, you know, there there is, I would say, from maybe Catholic quarters or maybe quarters that are upset with how, you know, the Irish Parliament is ruling or certain bills that are going through the Parliament here in Dublin or in London. It's to pick on the younger son of a family who might be involved in that, particularly the Connollys and the Loftuses and people, and say that they're so morally bankrupt, you know, that the devil has appeared in their houses or has appeared in their hunting lodges. It's, it, it, it smacks of that sort of propaganda, really, doesn't it? But then, instead of these guys fighting back against it, they're reveling in it, and they're, they're writing books saying, yeah, we were totally <laughs> meeting the devil. Itself. Like, it nearly feeds off itself. And, you know, I mean, I think... Going even today, you know, we love storytelling and we love telling each other stories, you know. And like, even when we meet up with our friends, we love, you know, telling them about something, you know, that incredible has happened to us. And I think there is like an element of that too, you know. These guys were great fun, these are the people that you wanted to hang out with, you know. These were, you know, the kind of celebrities of their day, and they were just, you know, they were into partying, big lavish parties, and, and a part of the partying ritual in Ireland whether you were like filthy rich or you know you were a farm laborer was sitting around the fire at night and telling stories 
and I think a lot of that comes from this you know the stories got more and more elaborate and they love the stories you know and something could have happened here like a bird flew in the window or a bat came down the chimney and it morphed and morphed you know the story got more and more elaborate and all of a sudden it was the devil himself I mean a lot of times like when they were playing cards you know they were sitting around here they were like smoking um, tobacco they were throwing various things into the fire and um, you know when they were finished with them wine was being drunk and spilt all over the place so you could imagine a spark or some a coal could have fallen out of the fire and then the story gets more elaborated this is the devil this is fireball there's something itself and that story too of the where you're playing cards and um, a card falls on the ground or something happens and you discover a member of the party's got hoofed feet. That, um, that story is synonymous with a lot of the big houses of Ireland. And actually, a lot of the houses, like, say, Castletown House, which was also built by Speaker Connolly, and Loftus Hall in Wexford, and the, a member of the Loftus family was involved here in the Hellfire Club as well, that that story of the devil playing cards... Um, kind of comes out of that and uh, my own grandmother in Cork used to say playing cards is the devil's prayer book you know that a a deck of cards is because it's all about luck and chance the luck of the devil and gambling and the corruption of the yeah the soul and things like that so I think this place is just seeped in that sort of mythology I think it's seeped in that sort of notoriety it lives and thrives off notoriety and I think that's what they wanted you know they were trying to be as provocative as possible interesting we, we we're not even it's not even known for sure like how much time they spent here like their regular dig seems to have been a tavern on Cork Hill in, in the city proper but because the house was built and owned by members of the club, mm-hmm. um, it, it's certainly a possibility that they did some of their carousing up here. And this, I mean, just as, as a place where folklore gathers, this is such a more potent symbol than... Absolutely, I think it is. Now, I mean, even when here today in 2020, it, it's, it's sort of very inaccessible to get up here. Um, it's a very narrow winding roads. There's like just a footpath that brings you up to the top of the hill. So, I mean, if you're looking for some place to have a party and get drunk, you're not going to come all the way out here. I'm sure there were very comfortable houses in Marion Square and College Green that you could t- um, have a room in one of those rather than coming out all here. But I think, again, I'd say maybe they visited here once. Maybe it was just that they were out on a hunt and everybody came back here and a big party, you know, took off. But I think if you saw Montpellier and you saw the ruins of the Hellfire Club, it's much more fun to think that they were here and the symbolism of it. And I think maybe on a night that they wanted to be particularly shocking, they got together and thought, let's go up here and dress up. And like, you know, if they're going to pin all this um, notoriety on us, let's be as notorious as possible. I could see that happening, you know, to when people get together, like, you know, you think, um, let's let's try and be as provocative as we can. Or it's somebody's birthday, let's have a massive, you know, like fancy dress party and we'll all come up here, you know? Jeffrey Ash, in his book, The Hellfire Clubs, A History of Anti-Morality, tells a short story about Jerusalem Whaley, mentioning that, quote, as a hellfire ringleader, he returned to the old meeting area on Montpellier Hill and went in for satanic parties. One lurid tale is that he set a man trap there, caught a farmer's daughter in it, and had her killed and smoked 
like a side of pork and carved up for sharing among his fellow members. Another widely circulated story about the end of the lodge states that one of the members accidentally or deliberately spilt alcohol on the coat of a servant and then callously set him alight, accidentally burning the whole place down. Whether or not we put any stock in these stories being literally true, I echo Victoria's thoughts in saying that if these were the kind of stories that were being told about these guys around the taverns of Dublin, well, I think it lets us know a little bit about how they were seen by the general population. Remember, as much as we kind of celebrate their crazy living, their wild times and their funny stories, these were the upper class of Dublin. These were the people who were either supposed to be running the country, actually running the country, or some combination of the two. They were an incredible idle rich at a level that is almost difficult to imagine now, and they seemed to exist only to kind of defeat their own boredom by coming up with increasingly provocative behaviour, almost for its own purpose. Whether or not they really burned people alive and uh, sacrificed people for satanic masses, it's extremely likely that the way they treated women and the way they treated servants and the people of Dublin reflects something almost as bad. Sometimes truth can be enshrined in myth and mystery, and sometimes the darkest secrets are the ones that are happening out there on the street or on top of the hill for everybody to see. You've been listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast about why people believe weird things. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach out on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Huge thanks once again to Victoria Ann Pearson for coming on the show with us. We had a really great time. Please do check out our back catalogue for lots of other great episodes. If you like this one, please share it with at least one person who you think might like it. Uh, and follow us to find out more episodes and subscribe to get the next ones delivered right to you. So as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in.